If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello, how are you? My voice is slightly croaky today. That's because it's the day after the BAFTA Awards uh, as I'm recording this. And I'm not going to lie, I had a brilliant night, not just at the awards, but at a few of the parties afterwards. So it was an early morning finish this morning, hence why I'm a little bit croaky and maybe a little bit deeper than uh, expected. Um, Congratulations to everybody, both, you know, all the nominees, but everybody who won as well. All Quiet in the Western Front, I mean, winning an outstanding number of awards. And yeah, the speeches I thought were absolutely fantastic. And if you haven't already, you can listen to Edward, uh, the director and writer, and Volker Bertman, the composer, who picked up the BAFTA for Best Score last night. Uh, on a previous episode. Uh, there's a couple actually as well, Banshees of Inisherin, massive congratulations to Kerry and Barry and Martin and all his team. You can listen back to Martin on a previous episode. Also his composer, Carter Burwell. Charlotte Wells, yay! She got a BAFTA for After Sun. Uh, and you can hear Charlotte on a previous episode as well. Kate Blanchett talking about Tar. Yeah, feel very lucky that we've been able to feature so many um, of the nominees and winners on the podcast. I'll stick up loads of links up on social to guide you through to some of them if you haven't checked them out already. But our latest guest on soundtracking is Ben Caron, a director who cut his teeth on numerous TV shows like The Crown and Andor and has now directed his very first feature film for Apple TV. It's also shown in cinemas as we speak. It's called Sharper and it's um, oh, a twisty, turny tale, I'd say, where nothing is really quite as it seems. It stars Julianne Moore, Sebastian Stan, John Lithgow and is scored by our wonderful friend Clint Manso. I can't and I won't tell you too much about this film, but what I will say is that it kind of lulls you into a false sense of what you think the film is about very cleverly and then kind of takes you off on a bit of a journey. Brilliant performances, not least from Julianne Moore. She's just brilliant in this film and and her and John Lithgow together, really, really interesting. So yeah, either go and see it at the cinema or go and check it out on Apple TV. Um, But first, before we get to Ben, a word from our friends at Gusto. Now, Now, I might have mentioned on some previous episodes of the podcast that I really like cooking. However, I'm going to be honest with you right now. I've got to the point where I've fallen into a bit of complacency with what I cook. It's basically the same things every week. I've bored myself and God knows how my family feel about it. Well, thank goodness for Gusto and its menu of over 250 recipes to spice things up. What's not to love about a box arriving with pre-portioned fresh ingredients and easy to follow recipe cards? This week we had a delicious chicken korma and then a spiced shakshuka with feta. Mmm very yummy. 
Now, even if you are in any way intimidated by the idea of cooking, believe me, Gusto makes it so easy and totally achievable. It gives you everything you need to create incredible home-cooked meals every week. And as I said, there are over 250 recipes to choose from and you can have them delivered to your door any day of the week. So, how would you like 60% off your first box followed by 25% off all boxes for two months. Well, if you do, then head to cook.gusto.co.uk forward slash claim. That's cook.gusto, that's G-O-U-S-T-O.co.uk forward slash claim. I'll also stick a link up on our socials so you can click through. So why not start enjoying quality dishes today? That's 60% off your first box plus 25% off all boxes for two months by heading to cook.gusto.co.uk forward slash claim. Mm, now I'm hungry. And so to Ben and his debut feature Sharper. And we'll begin with one of Clint's cues from the movie. Do you like martinis? This is so exciting, Benjamin Karen, because we we're talking about your first feature film. How does it feel? <laughs> I don't know. It's terrifying because in the <laughs> past, I guess, there's always someone you could kind of hide behind. If the crown wasn't very good, oh, well, that's Peter Morgan's fault. If Andor wasn't very good, oh, well, that's Tony Gilroy's fault. <laughs> Whereas now, then I, there's no one else you can really <laughs> hide from. So, you know, my head's firmly on the block. Well, I tell you what was really lovely from, you know, not just watching the film, but reading the production notes as well, is hearing your your team, you know, those people that you've worked, producers and, and whatnot and stuff, that and writers, that the connection that you had with the story and, and what how impressed they were with your... Because I think that's a really interesting thing as well, that people maybe don't kind of realise is sometimes the journeys to get into direct films. You know, in terms of you connected with the story, and you you pitched for it. You had clear ideas of what you what you saw, and that those clear ideas really impressed people like Julianne Moore, who I mean, she's gushes about you in these productions. It's beautiful. You know, you were on the same page basically. What was it about the story, the characters, the you know, the script that you that you were like, yes, that they're all incredibly kind. I had to pay them a lot of money to say. All <laughs> But yeah, they did. I mean, Julianne Moore essentially was the reason, um, you know, I came onto this movie. That she was the one who pretty much got this film going. You know, it was Brian and Alex had written a brilliant script. It wasn't produced. It hadn't been picked up. It was sort of sitting on this thing called The Blacklist. And, you know, it was brought to her by her management team. And she just, she was looking for great parts. And there was a great part in there for Madeline. And as soon as she said yes, then... You know, Apple and A24 are like, oh, OK, Julia Moore wants to make a movie. We'll, we'll make that with you. And then and then and then it became the sort of the search for for a director. But 
when I first read the script, you know, Alex and, and Brian had just written this really smart, funny, character-driven original movie, which there weren't that many out there. And I I just liked how it was devious. It was a thriller. <laughs> uh, I thought I loved how it sort of played around with sort of sexual politics, with trust and betrayal. And, and I loved all the twists and turns. It was like a sort of a poker game. And for my taste, I like the looks and the feels of those character-driven thrillers, which I love from the 70s, like Clute or Thomas Crown Affair. And also, I guess... One of the things I sort of pitched to them was like, look, I'm English I'm, and I think I can bring a outsider's sensibility to this story about people trying to sort of enter and pass through different worlds. And, and maybe that's hopefully advantageous to me telling this story. Did you have any music references at all in that pitch? Oh, I wasn't expecting that question. No music in my pitch. <laughs> and And to the point where actually one of the execs from a24 noah said um what kind of music do you think hoping to use in this film and i sort of said oh i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i i genuinely don't know because i don't think i'm ready to declare that yet yeah. and it was way too early and I, and and everything i'd sort of listened to i just didn't feel like it and i was like i that's just not how i work i'm really so i'm gonna be really honest it's not how i work it's it sort of it's a long process and I'm not sure you know we sort of make up the reasons afterwards what why and hope they make sense but I just I just didn't know at that time what it was going to be I do know that kind of as an idea the score and the sort of source tracks have to kind of work together to take us somewhere someplace kind of unexpected yeah. and I the idea that they're going to add to the story through music is integral but I just wasn't ready to declare what that was in terms of either kind of composer or um, ideas about sort of needle drops. It's quite a tricky project to talk about in any great detail in terms of content because <laughs> because you don't want to spoil it for anyone because it is an amazing kind of journey watching it, you know, in terms of, like you say, the twists and turns and, and everything that kind of unveils itself and doesn't unveil itself and all that kind of thing. So... Well, I can't see because there was a few I, I checked in the, the production notes just because it does mention it is the idea yeah. that and it's such a brilliant way of storytelling, actually, is that each act is a different character's perspective. Yeah. And with that, there's a through line musically, but there's also its own sound in a way, which is yeah. really clever. And it works so brilliantly because you start the film thinking you're watching a certain type of film and then you go, no, I'm not. It's so great. It's so, so good. And the music really contributes, I think, to that as well. So talk to me a little bit about the choices as well in terms of, because there's some fantastic needle drops in there. I said to you, because you asked me about this, and I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to mention too many of them because I'd love to just to hear your natural kind of storytelling through them. But there are a couple, like the Talking Hedge track is brilliant. Yeah. But then Clint Mansell doing the score. Yeah. Inspired. So what kind of came first? Were the cues written or were the needle? What was the kind of, you know, what was the journey of that music, I guess? Okay. Okay. Good, good question. So I guess the hiring the composer and the music supervisor was sort of happened at kind of around about the same time. But Clint was 
was almost, you know, was high up on my list, almost probably at the top of, of someone that I really, really wanted to work with. Coincidentally, we're from the same very small town in the West Midlands, Stavridge. His parents still go and have Sunday lunch in my dad's pub. So that's not a reason to hire him, by the way. But I was like, there aren't that many people that come out of Starbridge and go and work in, in Hollywood. So I was like, that is that is pretty bonkers. And and he used to be in a band called mm-hmm. Hot Will Eat Itself, which I kind of knew of. But I remember some of those members left and came, went on and were in the Wonder Stuff. And I had those posters on my wall when I was uh, you know at school. So... I knew of him and I knew his background and then I and I, I probably, you know, I, I definitely knew about his music from his work with Darren Aronofsky from mm. Pi and then later on uh, Requiem for a Dream. So, uh, which was, you know, I remember listening to that score. It was a game changer. I've never heard yeah. anyone do anything like that with a score before. It, yeah. it was just knockout. So I was like, I was like oh, the producer, do you think we could, you know, see if Clint's available? And he was, and we met, and we just, I don't know, we just connected. Again, yeah. just talking about home, and again, a bit about he loved Sharper for all the same reasons that I loved it. And we talked about how, you know, in some way, all our characters are, are lost or broken, and how the sort of story provides a lot of room to bring some of the kind of unspoken subtext of the film. Mm-hmm. And one of the kind of challenging the challenges we had was how do we reflect the different narrative perspectives of each chapter with the score? If we kept changing the music, it would our, our kind of feeling was that it would become chaotic. So that actually, the score needed to be a cohesive thread throughout, and it naturally felt that that was Sandra, and because her sort story is so central to Sharper. And we feel and see so many kind of things from her point of view that so her stories have inspired the spine of the school. Mm. And so he start, so he set off and started to kind of put together ideas during the shoot. And then really early on during the rough assembly, he started handing over demos and and he instantly had a really good instinct. And he's a very smart composer because he knows he wants to get his music in that film as soon as possible because directors can get really attached to temp music and so it's really important that they get you know you get your composer's music in there from the beginning and um i remember him sending that first batch of demos and me just sort of jumping up and down with joy was getting really excited about where this this soundscape was going
so that was the beginning of the journey with the with, with the score. And then in terms of the the source tracks, um, I had to Jan Mars, and we worked together for the last ten years. Who, mm. by the way, is a kind of the the sort of fourth person in this in this quadrangle of of, of <laughs> soundscape um, because he's just brilliant with music. And he had worked with someone called Simon Astle, who had just come off the back of Big Little Lies, and he'd worked on Come On, Come On, another A twenty. Uh, right. A24 film and, and American Honey and he just felt like a, a perfect fit and we talked about how we wanted tracks that were timeless and could have a kind of feeling and an undertone of a sort of New York jazz and soul but I just didn't want that I didn't want that music to date easily and so it had to sort of and that's a, you know, it's a really hard thing to find so we had to kind of get that balance right but that the music could reflect the character um, but also the location. So those two things were really um, important. And, and to stay away from anything way too modern or kind of on the on the nose, but that the sounds that could be playing around them, maybe at home or in their car or restaurants or, a, or a, at parties. So and finding that source music that could sort of feel real and then bleed out into the film and could work over like a montage. So I guess to start, maybe we start at the beginning. So we... Um, well, we have our title sequence, which actually is constructed with sounds taken from Clint's score, what you call them, the little stems, and my yeah. editor put that together. And that, that title sequence is, uh, was actually the hardest thing we had to make. It's been wow. so many different things. Um, it was harder to make that title sequence than it was the film. It, it was, it was, <laughs> I can't even, I mean, that's another story. It was incredibly complicated. It was as an idea I had when I was filming about the idea of a, of making a, a fake Rolex watch. That was always the idea. But the sort of sound to it has changed so many times. But eventually we just sort of, you know, the motto of this film was always simplify. And eventually we sort of went back to some of the stems from Clint Score and, and Jan, my amazing, you know, amazing to sort of put that together. And it's brilliant. So he starts off the film in many ways. And then we come into Tom, uh, who is played by Justice Smith. And we meet him working in a bookshop. And in the background on the radio, we hear Irma Thomas, ruler of my heart. And he's alone in that bookshop. He's lost in this world of fiction, hiding from the sort of outside world. And then in steps Sandra. And it's funny because he's sort of annoyed that someone has come in and dare ask Disrupted, yeah. The book. He's like sort of, he's kind of reluctantly taken out of this literary bubble and almost, you know from the not real to the real and i love that track by emma i think it's so soulful it's just it's just a lovely way to bring you in to tom's chapter ruler of my heart driver of my soul I wait patiently My heart cries out Pain inside Where can you be? I wait patiently Is it hard to almost remove your own 
emotional connection to music when you are kind of working out what works? You've got to facilitate the car the character, the relationship, the emotion, the moment in the film sort of thing. And sometimes it's so hard to disassociate yourself and your personal I, connections with pieces of music. I'm gonna be really honest and I'll probably mm -hmm. regret saying this, but I I had I didn't have a childhood when I have a great relationship with music. Maybe that's helped me now because I when I was at school my when I was like 11 years old I went to school we had our first music lesson I was told by the teacher that you're tone deaf and so I I kind of got put off music and the love of music when I was sort of younger and so I yes I I cut you had to because to be part of the kind of group of friends you were with you sort of you felt like you had to know about bands but I never really had a strong connection to music in a way that um you know like you do or, or, or friends of mine do so yeah so I I respond maybe this is helpful so I don't have a, a real affinity to one particular thing so I respond yeah. generally in a kind of feel of um of something and 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 through that and through that you know through the scene or through the character that's great. So it's quite good in a way. You know, my suggestions I always put forward are always, you know, terrible. But that's why I, I love having a you know music supervisor who comes on board and 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 surprises you with 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 so much. Um, you know, I think that at the end of that scene when Tom, well, what can happen is you can really get bedded into a track like something. So there was a track actually where when Tom and Sandra head off on their first date. Mm -hmm. We had this great track by Santa and Johnny, and it has this really great opening, and it was in for it was in for a long, long, long time. And then, to, as you get towards the end of the film, you you start to find out which of the tracks you can use. I mean, there's sort of a good music supervisor will be doing that as you're going along, and will sort of know, you know, should know whether you can use them or not. And he was, and and then this track had been used before, so there shouldn't have been a problem. But Santo of Santa and Johnny had gone missing and we couldn't find him or, or Simon couldn't find him and he apparently gone missing in Italy and uh, and after a few months we I think we almost sent someone out there to try and track him down we had like a PO box <laughs> number you get to a point where you have to find an alternative track and that's really painful because it had there was the, yeah. there were just specifics about that track which felt right it sort of kicks off the beginning part of the two of them on their first date but what ended up happening, um, we found this artist called Masatoshi Nakamura. Mm -hmm. And it was this, it was a kind of piece of music that it was a Japanese restaurant. It might be played on yeah. vinyl there. And it was a kind of perfect fit. And it had the same opening, those same opening bars that the Santa and Johnny did. So it was actually ended up probably being more appropriate. And it also felt like it was something that could be played in that, in that restaurant. の坂道はこの葉のように石畳まばゆく白い長い壁足跡も影も残さないでたどり着けない山の中へ続い
a great story. If you ever need anyone to travel the world to find <laughs> missing musicians in the future, I'm just putting myself forward for that role. Okay, okay. <laughs> Edith, go and find Santo. Track him down and just tell him he's lost a load of money. <laughs> that sounds like the best job in the world, like part detective, part kind of music historian. That's brilliant. I love it. Oh, my God, that's so good. It's it's almost like there's a lot of the time that, you know, that's a great example of of there's a great story attached to how and why a piece of music ends up in a film. It's not sometimes as easy as going, I want that one, you know, and, and it can be all for all manner of reasons. Really. But that's um, I like the extremities of that. That's great. Yeah. There's a beautiful track that sort of happens, which, which takes it's like that first act, the first Tom's chapter is. You know nothing about this film you're gonna you're gonna start this movie thinking you're watching something else and yeah. and i and i certainly lean into that and um you know we have this this great track by curtis harding i, I won't let you down and it, and mm-hmm. it sort of plays over this couple falling in love montage which is such a kind of classic of a rom-com in many ways but maybe a kind of our or my version of it you know it sort of has soul and um it, it, it's so sexy, it's kind of dangerous, they're kind of getting to know each other. That worked brilliantly for, for that moment of seeing these two people fall in love. Take your time And don't worry, baby Everything is fine We only use source music, you know, all the way through. And so that whole first chapter, it, it was really important that we were sort of we were off on this love journey and I wanted it to feel electric and focus on the romance and being the kind of emotional heart of the film because that's you you need that for the end of the film to pay off. And yeah, once their romance feels authentic, you know, what happens will feel even more surprising. So we use source music until I think until about 18 minutes in the film and then and then and then we sort of bring Clint in. And it was about, I guess for us, it was about sort of not tipping a hat too much to the audience or, or letting the sort of music get ahead of the story. So it sort of responds to what we're seeing yeah. and feeling. And this piece of music, which I think is called 350 Grand, you know, I remember hearing it the first time and I cried. It was, um, and you can't, you can never forget, you know, you, you always try and have that same feeling again, but yeah. you never do. But I just felt the desperation um and the kind of heart emotional heart of that piece of music it's it's absolutely heartbreaking it and it's all clint
but it's really clever though because like you say that kind of opening sequence has got kind of sort of sounds of that score so it's kind of warmed its way into your kind of psyche in a way sort of thing totally so it's, it's really clever really really clever and it's that idea as well and i think the music does a great job because you know these not given too much way by saying for some of these actors they're almost playing two characters in a way as well and the music i think does a great job of telling us things i think like that the dirty laundry track uh john <laughs> henley's track as well you know that's uh that scene you know that piece of music sort of tells us is, is like almost unveiling some kind of narrative to us i think in a way as well it's it's really clever do you want me to talk about that yeah why not would you mind yeah yeah, yeah, I yeah. Okay. Song. I just I didn't know whether you wanted to go in order because I was going to just quickly whiz through the film like do Sandra, but do you want me to just jump to that? I don't mind. It's up to you. I mean, I, I I'm not sure we have we'll have. Well, I, don't, I mean, time. yeah, to go through everything. So maybe if you wanted, if there's specifics you want to talk about. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I'm definitely that was. I've got another. I've got basically three or four that I want to mention. Perfect. That's, that's Perfect. definitely one of them. So let me get to that. Otherwise, my I have to go kind of. Weirdly, Chronologically, I have to go in, got it. My, my brain may not all just sort of collapse in on itself slightly, but um, <laughs> but we have Sandra and her kind of uh, chapter, and we had for ages we had this track by Roy Orbison called "It Wasn't Very Long Ago," and I mm-hmm. and I again it was one of those tracks I loved, and it just worked, and it was in there until I think the day before we locked the picture, and and I remember we had I had a conversation with one of the brilliant execs at A24, Zach, and he said to me, you know, look, all the music you've used so far in the whole film is just brilliant, but does this one feel Sandra? And it was like a sort of bubble just burst in my head. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't mm. know. And then it was like, okay, Simon, you know, what, what have you got? Let's go back to the sort of the soundtracks. And we um, we went back to the Supremes track, Just a Lonely Christmas, and it was yeah. perfect. And it just helped with the feeling of Christmas, the sense of sort of Sandra's isolation, and it was something that I could definitely believe her grandmother could have played when she was growing up. Although actually we didn't lose Roy completely. We ended up sort of putting him into the bar and sort of playing from the jukebox. But it was one of those last minute things that actually was, I'm really happy that we we changed. Just a lonely, lonely Christmas What a glad So then we kind of get more into um, the score from from Clint and he gets to play with all these brilliant synth sounds that, you know, that I've sort of, I sort of pushed him to kind of this sort of strange alternative kind of underground New York City and mm, not yeah. kind of traditional drama in, in New York. And, you know, he has this amazing track that we sort of use for the drive and, and for kind of the building Sandy, which I kind of pitched him as a kind of educating Rita meets Rocky. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it's like this sort of, this warmth and this, how it kind of builds this sort of star pupil. And then there's this, there's this, mate, there's this moment where um, sort of our two characters are going on to this, this journey into, you know, into New York. And, and I, I always thought that it was going to be score or certainly an instrumental piece. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, you didn't want to be distracted by any lyrics and you wanted just to indulge in those visuals, possibly, you know, e electronic. It, it For me, it was about the kind of, you know, New York and what was New York and this sort of city that kind of operated at the sharp end of the American dream and this sort of transactional city. And so Simon was like, okay, I've got this piece of music that you should just have there for as a as a temp while while Clint's still working on that. And and it was one of those tracks that I just couldn't let go. And it and it stayed there. And and Clint, he gave us um a couple of really good alternatives, but it never quite the only one that I, I ashamedly hang, I hung on to and I said, Clint, you, you know, I asked his permission. I said, look, I'm really sorry. Do you do you mind? I can't. And he's so such a lovely man and so gracious. Mm. He was like, not at all. You should hang on to it. And it's it's Detroit by Disaster Piece. Yeah. And the atmosphere, the mm. way you know, when we put it to pictures, it disconnected. It was like a sort of urban blade run. that isn't it where kind of you've kind of put so much work into to shooting and to directing you know and, and the colors in the film as well I absolutely love and sometimes just a the right piece of music can do something that you kind of can't really quite describe but it's it's a feeling it feels right there's nothing else that tells you that it's right apart from the feeling yeah and and to, and then and then so then Clint comes you know he comes racing back in at the end of that chapter and he's like we've got Sandra we've got Max they are you know she is sort of at the end of her training she's complete and he drops this track and it is so yeah. sexy and so like just like <laughs> vibrates on screen and then and like just as you're like sort of you know vibrating in your chair we sort of drop into Max and we have this brilliant track by Talking Heads Slippery People so good which I oh. love and I can imagine, you know, it, it's it's the it's a just the perfect introduction to Max. And I can imagine, you know, I can imagine David Byrne, you know, turning up at this uptown Manhattan penthouse yeah. and going, like, what the fuck is this? You know, and <laughs> <Yeah>. it's like <laughs> and that clash between that music and 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 suddenly we come into this wealthy billionaire's penthouse and it's when we've got this jazz. The jazz, yeah. And that's Samara Joy. She's, you know, she she was there singing that live, and that those two kind of sounds pushing up against was was something right from right from day one. Was like, like this is what this is what I want. I want I want 
max and he's going to come in and and you know be like a sort of whirlwind a bomb that's about to explode in 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 sort of rich's rich's apartment and we again that and that track was on right from very early on we tried so many other tracks because even though you sometimes go this is it because we're listening to it so many times yeah you, you start to get a little bit jaded and yeah. you kind of lose a bit of your confidence. So we had Rolling Stones in there. We had David Bowie. We were like, we were trying, you know, classics, non-classics. And we keep, but the, actually the, our, like my sister, uh, Jodie, who's like co-producer on the movie. And, and even sort of, you know, the producer in America were like, no, no, please go back to Talking Heads. Please mm. go back to Talking Heads. <laughs> and we kept going, yeah, 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 yeah. And we kept sort of playing with them. And then, and then you know, it comes to the, it comes to the moment where we have to declare and we go, and Yan and I would look at each other and go, no, nothing, nothing has beaten this track. So it, it, it was there from the beginning and it was there at the end. And I'm, I'm really, really happy. It's really interesting because those two pieces of music you talk about, the, the Samara Joy and, and then and the Talking Heads thing, they're basically the kind of two lives that he's leading almost in a way. Yes, exactly. It's so it's so great. Exactly. Um, I'm not giving anything away there, have I? No. No, 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 you're not. No, no, no I think no, no, I'm no. So not. cautious of kind of like. <laughs> oh. Well, I don't know when, when people are going to listen to this. I don't know. I mean, uh, I I think for me. Um, audiences love stories about people who come from nowhere and reinvent themselves and you know in unexpected and kind of sort of deceptive ways and i think transformation is yeah. is hugely seductive and i you know we the idea of entering one world and and moving into another is the sort of realm of fairy tales it's cinderella going to the ball it's um you know it's eliza in pygmalion and it's vivian in pretty women so I think we mm. or I uh, uh, respond positively to stories of sort of reinvention or transformation. Mm. And I think we just, we, we we love them. We love to sort of see, I mean, it's like sort of wish fulfillment. <laughs> From what you've done prior to this film, you know, like like The Crown and Andor as two examples, you've worked with like pretty big names, you know, in terms of you've directed some pretty big names and it's lovely to, get the chance, I guess, to work with John Lithgow again uh, from yeah. directing him as Winston Love Churchill to Richard in this film. Seeing him and Julianne Moore together as well, I was like, why have they never done like tons of films together before? Because it's it's a really interesting and brilliant on-screen partnership. But what is she, I mean, in my eyes, she's just a kind of this, this kind of maiden. She's normal, but she's cool and she's just, oh, anyway, what is she like to direct? And that, and the, you know, talking about directing her, there is that scene that features the Don Henley track as well, which is just watching her dance is like, ah. Oh. It's 
difficult to talk about any of these characters that are giving away, but I yeah. love Julia Moore is exceptional. She is one of those actors who loves to act and is brilliant at acting, and she's about as good as it gets. And and more importantly, she is a really nice human being, generally. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I I, I really mean that. And and I think um she uh you know she was on this project right from the beginning and and is a producer on the movie and I, I loved working with her and um you know I think one of the one of the great moments was when we we see her and Sebastian <laughs> uh, arrive in a in this sort of dive bar in in Queens and we have this really great trap by Don Henley called Dirty Laundry and it was just so fitting for <laughs> at this moment in the film, you know, these two lead characters who are kind of celebrating a win and then, you know, where nothing is really what it seems. They sort of, they lose themselves in dance, in movement, in music, and this sort of incredible melody. And there's this, I don't know, there's a kind of power dynamic to the moment to which mm. the, for me, the lyrics just really connected. It's yeah. it's raw, it's intense, and it and it comes at a really key point in the film. With something the, like that, was it choreographed or was it a case of So it was so I remember saying to Julie, like, we've got this, we've got this, it wasn't actually written in the film. And I was like, look, I think there's a moment here where we can have a bit of light relief and and celebrate, celebrate these guys. And, yeah. and have a dancing, you know, and I look, you know me, I love a dance. I love a dance. Oh, yeah. you know, we did in in Fairy Tale with Emma Corrin. We had that moment oh. um, with with the Elton John track, and and even going way back to Vanessa Kirby, all the way back in the to car too. Exactly. Um, or in the in in her apartment where she's sort of smashing up the room, and then later on when she's in love, she's sort of you know we play these two tracks. So so I love that moment as a as a filmmaker was expressing something something different. So so yes, we. We found the track really early on, and 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 I I I always sort of again Jan sent it to me and was like, what about this? And I was like, oh man, I like it. It's like it's really dirty and it sounds yeah. great. But, you know, do you think do you think we can get away with it? And he was like, yeah, yeah, we can definitely get away with it. I was like, he's like, this movie's amazing. Any music I put on it just sticks. It's like I don't understand. Like normally you try music and, and it sort of takes a while it's like this film takes any music but I was like, okay fine let me I need to get you know I need to check to see how the actors feel about it because you can't you know well maybe it's just my approach but you want to make sure that they're on board with that so I sent it to Sebastian and Sebastian Stan who plays Max and and Julia Moore and Sebastian came back and was like man this is my favorite track of all time. Are you? No. <laughs> He's like, Are you fucking serious? I I love this track. I love Don Henley. He's like, have you got permission? And I'm like, um, no. But you know, uh, you know, as you sort of you go, yeah, that wouldn't be a problem. And then I sort of, you know, then Julie came out. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's great. So then I was like, okay, well, look, we're gonna we're gonna film this live with this music, and we're gonna get a choreographer and. I th- Amy Herman, who was the line producer, was like, well, you've got to go and get Susan Stroman. Uh, and Susan Stroman is like this sort of very famous choreographer, director in her own right uh, from Broadway. And yeah. uh, I was like, do you think she'll do it? And she was like, yeah, of course she'll do it. It's Julianne Moore, Sebastian Stan. So I got in touch with her and I sort of said the track I was thinking about. And she was like, yeah, I will definitely come and play for a day. So yes, we had, she, actually she said to me, as long as, as long as you can give me the title 
sort of uh, what did she say? Something like sort of um, strip bar choreographer or something like that, which uh, I don't think gets the mic. But anyway, she was really game, and so we yeah we choreographed with that track, and then on the day we you know we had that blasting into the into the bar, but sort of in tandem to that, we are now have to get permission from Don Hendley and Simon, the music supervisor, like, by the way, this has never been used in a film before. Like, really? Never... Yeah, I know. That's what I said. It's that, I know. I, I, I def... I've heard it maybe, but I don't, anyway, you go online, I have about... someone will probably come up and go, oh yeah, it was used in this, but no, it's never <laughs> been used in a movie before, which is actually, is brilliant, because you go, oh wow, we can own this, but it's also terrifying, because you're like, well, why has <laughs> been used in the movie for yeah. so, so it sounds like well you maybe you should write a, a letter to don so uh write a letter to don henley and you know it had a track record with this because i had to write to elton john before to get um for the crown and and we had to send that episode to him to see and so i was like okay um i know, you know how this works <laughs> yeah, I know how this works. <laughs> yeah, do I say, Mr. You know, Don, dear Don, no, no, Mr. Henley. Okay, yeah, right. Um, uh, and 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 then and then you send this letter, and it goes out, and then it's like waiting, and we're waiting, and we've shot it. All the actors think we get to use this track because I've sort of, you know, I've, I obviously want to keep their confidence up, and you're, you know, and you're saying, oh yeah, yeah, we're going to use the track, we're going to use the track, and. The good news is, as you, is that he came back and eventually said, "Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you to use the track." I didn't get any personal note from Don, but I just kind of heard, heard from thumbs up. From, yeah, yeah, that that's fine for us to use. So yeah, thank fuck, we got to use wow. uh, Don, and it's and it's in, and and it's so good. Um, it's not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love it. One more, yeah. Do you want to do a uh, needle drop or, or a bit of score? What do you think? Be nice to do a bit of score if that's okay. Yeah. Just to kind of, we've, I mean, we've talked a, a little bit yeah. about Clint and, and that kind of journey, but there are a lot of brilliant needle drops in the film. But the <laughs> score has got such an important job within and around that because not only has it got to work being on either side of these needle drops, it's got to run through these different acts of character perspective it's it's got it's got to do a lot and it's got to work and it absolutely does is it a piece of uh, Clint's score that you're particularly proud of or you're just kind of so that just works so brilliantly is a great example for you I mean I of course I do I love all of the, the music that Clint has created for Sharper but there's <laughs> I'll give you two I'll give you two two tracks that really stand out for me what yeah um 
and they both have a very different journey actually the, so there's a moment in the film where um the we're in sort of we're in madeline's chapter and suddenly everything has has changed we've just come off the back of relishing her success and the pressure is back on her and we and we start to really double down on the thriller element in the film and we start to push the internal sort of psychology so to speak mm. and there's a moment where she has to find max it's really important that she finds max and jan and i were quite cheeky because we had um when we were sort of temping some of the film that clinton not got to yet because you know he's an artist and it sort of takes a while to get there we had gone back into his back catalogue and used pieces of music from other films that he had worked on and for that moment we used his famous requiem which in hindsight now is probably the worst thing you can do <laughs> to a composer is then you know say oh look we just we've put this on here which <laughs> can you beat it <laughs> and then so then so then you, I, I, we sent him that that reel and then we didn't hear from him for three weeks <laughs> just went quiet nothing nothing at all he just disappeared and we thought maybe uh we we i don't know we we'd done him we we'd finished him <laughs> off but he was like that was it he wasn't coming back it was like <laughs> you can't do that to, you can't do that to me but he did he came back and he not only did he give us something that was so brilliantly unique to our film, he I, I think he did reach those levels again. And and not only that, he got his guitar out, which was so exciting. And it was just a great piece of music, which we just follow Madeline's descent and it just gets twisty and twirly and it and it's and it I just love it. And the other piece, which is probably just because I'm going to say this, because it's not, it, I, it's uh, it's surprising in a way because I'm choosing a piece of music that plays over the credits at the very end of the film. Uh, this is me encouraging people to watch right to the very end of the film, of course. But it was a piece of music that Clint wrote really early on that was actually going to play in the Tom and Sandra falling in love montage. Yeah. And I remember when he wrote that and we put that to picture. It was just heart achingly beautiful and it was mm. so perfect 
but also it wasn't right mm -hmm. because it sort of was melancholy melancholic and it gave away something Too that much, we didn't yeah. want to give away in that moment in the movie and it mm. broke my heart to sort of take it out of there and you know and Curtis Harding found his way in instead and it you know, became part of that conversation about you know holding back the score to the end of the chapter but I love that piece of music so much and I was so happy that we could use that in the film although really? you know right at the very end and in a way it sort of is fitting there because at the end of the film we're left with the same two characters that we started the film with with Tom and Sandra and they've been through so much to get to this point it's a profound mm -hmm. moment and we don't know what's going to happen to them after that moment you know when they yeah. leave that bookshop but they have changed such a nice chat because no one kind of goes into so much detail about the specific and it's been so brilliant and <laughs> just and, and I think also because of that kind of the, the 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 different perspectives that each act has it's really lovely to hear you know you talk about some of them and the specifics about the the re relevance to character and the relevance to, to narrative as well it's lovely it's so great and your enthusiasm for it's just absolutely infectious Oh, thanks again. I, I, I could talk to you for a, a good amount more time in this, but we've run out of time. But um, thank you so much, Ben. And it's such an exciting time as well for, you know, what's what's next for you. And, um, you know, we didn't even get to talk about Andor or The Crown, really. We've got a little bit of Crown there as well. So we I hope we can have another sitting and we can uh, we can talk about I would like that very much. as well. Yeah, in person next time too. For sure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. From score to sharper, that's You Can't Cheat an Honest Man by Clint Mansell, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Ben Caron. 
My huge thanks to Ben for taking the time to talk to us. You can watch Sharper on Apple TV right now and in selected cinemas. And it really is a hugely entertaining slice of neo-noir. Spoken to Clint on the podcast several times uh, and very much look forward to having him on in the future. If you'd like to listen to any of those previous conversations, head to edithbowman.com to find them and every other episode. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do subscribe to our YouTube channel for loads of bonus content. Next up, we have a bonus episode with the boys from Son Lux, who scored everything, everywhere, all at once, which will be dropping very, very soon. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 